Hi, I'm Julie Morgenstern, and welcome to Time to Parent, the podcast that will give you more time, less guilt, and deeper joy. Today on the show, we have an extra special guest, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie Lithcott-Hames is best known for her groundbreaking book on parenting and overparenting called How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and prepare your kid for success. Julie was the Dean of Freshmen at Stanford for 10 years, and in that time, she'd seen an alarming trend. Parents had a hard time stepping back from their college-aged children. Julie broke down this overparenting trend in her book, and she has valuable perspectives on building resilience in young adults. Julie also wrote a book called Real American, a memoir on race and being biracial in this country. Last but certainly not least, she's the mom of two teenage children and currently lives in the Bay Area. I brought Julie on because I think she gets to the heart of what it's like to parent in this day and age. I know all my listeners will benefit from her viewpoint and insights. What's coming up is part interview, part conversation between Julie and I. It starts with a focus on Julie and her work. Then we dive into everything from why you should treat your kids more like your best friend's kids to why the parenting years are the most time-stretched years of our lives and what to do about it. You'll hear Julie's unique take on the time-to-parent concepts you've heard throughout this season. I hope you keep listening and find the conversation as fascinating and fun as I did. So, Julie, I am very, very, truly excited to speak to you. I have read your book of How to Be a Human. I had read that um, a while ago. I, as a time management organizing expert, and we'll talk more about this later, I'm always dealing with parents. Most of my clients have been parents because it's the most time-stretched years of a human's life. And um, they are uh, just don't know where to put their time. Like, how do I deal with these conflicting priorities? And when I read your book... I just thought it was so incredibly practical and insightful and attuned. Um, So I'm going to get into it with you in a little bit. But first, just for listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you just talk a little bit about your background, your time as dean of Stanford, and and what you saw changing in students and how that led to the uh, development of the ideas and the writing of the book? Julie, thank you so much for having me uh on your show to be in conversation with you. I'm excited about it. I'm not super adept at time management myself, so I'm going to share some things about my books, but I hope I'm going to glean some tips from you along the way. I love that you referenced parents as being in the most time-stretched years of their life. I had never thought about it that way, but wow, does that hit the nail on the head. So yeah, um, when it came to... uh, the impetus for writing the book, How to Raise an Adult, basically I came from two vantage points. I was this freshman dean at Stanford University, really noticing that childhood seemed to have changed because our undergraduates were showing up uh, more often than not over the years with a parent or two in tow, um, virtually present, sometimes physically present to help them make choices, handle situations, 
cope, deal. Uh, and I thought, boy, when are these tremendously capable in other ways, young adults going to hunger to be in charge of their own selves? And what's to become of them if they don't ever hunger for that, if they don't learn how to hashtag adult, which is, of course, a phrase that came into being in more recent years. And um, at the same time, I was raising my own kids in Palo Alto and uh, somehow along the way made this mortifying discovery that I was on track to be the very parent I was criticizing at the college level because I was doing too much for my kids uh, as little ones. So I was cutting my son's meat way too long. I was tying their shoes way too long. And these things sound trivial, but what that essentially means is I wasn't giving over to my children the task of learning to do things for themselves. And if we fail to do that, then we end up with 18-year-olds who need a lot of hand-holding in college. So that's what made me write the book. I'll offer a caveat. What I was seeing at Stanford wasn't a Stanford problem. University administrators on and campuses all over the country were seeing what we were seeing. I just happened to be at Stanford. So this isn't an indictment of Stanford. This is sort of uh, happened to be where I was located as I was noticing these changes we all began to appreciate were happening nationwide. Yeah. And I think from the work that I have done um, that it, it comes, this trend came from the universal desire of parents to really be there for their kids, right? Like parents, you partly, know, yeah. partly, partly. Um, and one of the things that you uh, talk about is um, that, you know, being there for your kids really comes from love, right? Love, not love of work or love of just accomplishment, but of each other. Can you talk a little bit about the difference of being there for your kid by connecting versus doing for yeah. I mean, we love our kids fiercely. We love mm-hmm. them in a way we can barely understand because it's so fierce and so innate in us. And our job as mammals is to raise offspring who can thrive, who can succeed, who can survive without us. And in that sense, we're no different than a dog or an elephant. We are. Our task is to make sure that the next generation has it has what it takes to grow up and raise their own kids. That's how we got this far, Mm -hmm. evolutionarily speaking. And yet these days, I think we've decided that love is doing everything for them. Love is always being there because you never know what might happen. And we've lost sight of the fact that if we do too much, this love, this lovingly based help can actually undermine our kids' opportunity to have the learning experiences that will teach them the skills, that will give them the confidence and the competence and enable them to be that freestanding adult one day. So Mm -hmm. the ways in which I'm thinking about the right manner of love um, these days kind of sounds like this. When parents are asking me kind of what's the right distance to have from my own child. We, none of us wants to be terribly distant, but we realize over encroaching is harmful. You know, where is the, what is the distance of appropriate love between parent and child? Um, this is the way I'm thinking about it these days and see if it makes sense to you, Julie. It's almost like we have to think of our kid as our best friend's kid. With our best friend's kid, 
when we see them, when they show up in our house, we show up in their house, we take an interest. Hey, how are you? What's going on? What's good in your life? Tell me, tell me what you're up to. Tell me what you're excited about. And we listen and we're joyful and we're, we're just adults who care, but we're not adults whose egos are inextricably intertwined with what that kid is saying, Mm -hmm. you know, so we can support and, and be interested and give good advice without acting as if their choices influence the quality of our life. Okay. And that's, that's, I think the appropriate love distance. Um, It's not that we don't care about what happens to our kids. It's not, you know, that we're disinterested. It's, it's that we, we actually have to be one step back so that they can show up in their own lives and be the person who cares most about their own efforts and their own time management and their own choices and solving their own problems. We are there near to be loving and caring and lend a shoulder and lend some advice. But when we're too close, we end up doing so much of the living and the planning and the coping for them. And they end up these chronologically adult people who, who really haven't had practice at walking mm-hmm. through life themselves. It's also a much, I love the image, by the way. I think it's fabulous. It makes so much sense. And I think anybody listening can like instantly go, oh, I know what that looks like. Yeah, like I'm cool. interested, yeah. but it's not my 100, res- uh, my responsibility to do for and make sure this person is happy or they right. are who they're going to be. Right. And that burden is also on parents, right? Like when, when parents don't have that distance and they feel responsible for every protection, decision, uh, choice, isn't that a huge burden also for the parent? Absolutely. I mean, when you, you, I presume, you know, is it Bridget Schulte's work? Um, yeah. yeah, Around just how stressful a lot of people have written lately about how stressful it is to be a parent in our milieu, in our time. It's incredibly onerous and burdensome. And, um, we're failing to model for our kids that an adult life is joyful, that adults have fun, that adults have some expertise in something, something they care about, right? We, I often say, Julie, no wonder so many young adults are failing to launch. We've made adulthood look so terribly unattractive, wow, right? So powerful. Yeah, if you're we right. could model for them that when you grow up and leave the home, look what awaits you. Look at the excitement. Look at the joy. Look at the opportunities. If we modeled that by living it, our kids would hunger for it. And I will say this, um, one of the reasons we are so, so desperate to control our kids every moment and every move and every outcome is somehow we've worked it into our psychological narrative that our children's outcomes are a reflection on our worth on our, like my child got into this school, therefore I'm a good parent. My child scored six goals. I'm a good parent. And so fundamentally what this comes down to, Julie, is we are not well as parents. We are hurting. Our psyche has all kinds of investments in our child's life. We need to build a sense of self that, that isn't about what our children are accomplishing. We need to feel good about ourselves and love ourselves regardless of what's happening in our kids' life today or next week or next year. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I feel that even as I'm listening to you, when all the eggs are in the kid's basket and all of your identity is in how your kid is doing or your kids are doing, 
it's a huge burden also for those children. Absolutely. <laughs> like, if they screw up, your whole life is going to implode, your whole identity. And I do think kids feel that, right? In addition they do. to... Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. And these higher rates of anxiety that kids are experiencing are due yeah. in part to the fact that kids come into homes and see the anxiety on a parent's face about how much homework do you have? Have you started your homework? When are you going to do your homework? When are we yeah. going to do your homework? You yeah. know, why didn't you do better today? You know, yeah. a kid looks into the eyes of the trusted adults who are supposed to love them unconditionally and sees constantly something is wrong. I need to work harder. I need to be constantly performing. So, so they definitely are impacted by, by the anxiety that we have. Yeah. So when you, with the students and you saw this, I think there's like two pieces of this. One is we have to trust, we, ha- we need a way to make the time. And I, I, we can talk about that a little bit later, but we also need to feel safe as grownups and adults that our kids are going to be safe if we are not dictating and protecting and hovering and making sure. So how, do, how can you assure us as parents? Where's the edge of that? That yeah. you're there enough, but not too much. They're safe, but they're also free. What's that line? Yeah. The image that weirdly just popped into my head was, for the, was of the made-for-TV movie that John Travolta starred in way back, I want to say in the 80s. So anyone of a certain age, anyone over you know, 45 might remember this. Um, there was a movie called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble and John Travolta starred in it and he was a kid with some kind of autoimmune disease and he was so susceptible to illness that he basically had to be protected with, you know, in, in a cocoon that was small when he was an infant and grew to be bigger when he was a child. And then as a teenager, here he was in a room, essentially, that was in, you know, that that was had these plastic walls and the air was constantly purified and he couldn't touch another human unless he put on gloves and they put on gloves. And it's a lovely metaphor for how we're raising our kids these days. We've decided that we're safe or that they're safe and therefore we're safe if we constantly know what's going on at all times, you know, don't let them out of our eyesight and so on. And this movie, I think, and our current circumstance as parents in modern America begs the question, what is a life? Is Mm -hmm. it a life if you're constantly surveilled, constantly under watch, you know, constantly hovered over by other humans? Doesn't Mm -hmm. life entail freedom, exploration, a chance to walk one's own path? And I think, you know, for me, the answer is yes. I like to say I gave my kids life and life is to be lived. So I am, even though they would quote unquote be safer if I kept them locked in the house 24 seven, 365, that is not why I had children. Okay. They deserve to fly and soar. And my job is to equip them to do that. And to do that entails learning the skills so that they'll be more and more competent. So we have to delight in our children walking away from us slowly. Mm -hmm. But when they start to learn to walk, that's the minute they're developing the skill that will ultimately allow them one day to walk away, not to stop loving us, but to walk toward a relationship that they want, toward a career that they want, toward a new city they want to live in or a new continent or a new manner of of being in life. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Right? So 
We have to start teaching our children to cross roads instead of acting as if we'll always be there to hold their hand. We have to teach them to use the stove rather than act like we'll always be there to prepare a meal. And crossing roads and using a stove are inherently risky. We're supposed to teach them rather than pretend someone will always be able to handle that risky thing for them. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. And now we go back to my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. When I was reading your book, it reminded me of a story uh, that when I was raising my daughter, she was going to junior high school in the city, and we lived in Brooklyn. So she had to take the subway for the first time, and she was going to take it. to. And I was so terrified. You talk about, like, putting your kid in harm's way on the New York City subway. And a very wise friend said to me, here's what you do. You take the subway and you articulate everything going through your head, all those intuitive choices that you're making, like I'm not standing too close to the edge of this of the subway. I'm near a pole in case a crazy person decides to shove me across onto the tracks. I'll grab the pole, like, but I'm looking cool on the surface. And just articulate what your thought process is three times and just let her observe. Then switch and have you observe her and she should articulate all the decisions she's making and then do that three times. And I tell you, it was remarkable. And then I, I just knew she was thinking right. She was making good choices. I heard the way she was thinking. And she was able to take the subway to school. Julie, that's so beautiful. And you just managed to tell through your own storytelling uh, close to the four-step method that, I've, uh, that I tend to promulgate in trying to tell parents the same thing, which is for any skill, taking the subway, crossing the street, using the stove, first you do it for them which we're doing a whole lot of, you know, they don't have to think, we just handle it there with a, then you do it with them. And this is where you're narrating out loud, just like you did the three, you're going over what you have to think about, what you have to worry about, what you have to watch out for, what happens next. Then you watch them do it. And that's the reversal. You're still there, but you've asked them to be the ones to do the thinking out loud. So you can hear their thought process and you can kind of check up and make sure they've got everything. And then finally they can do it alone. And ultimately we have to get to step four before we're dead so we can have that mammalian confidence that we've raised our offspring to have the skills that we need them to have so that they can in turn raise the next generation. Yeah. I I love that. And it's practical. And it, and what I also love about it for parents and through the lens that, you know, is that it allows you, it gives you a roadmap for being connected to your child it's not just sending them off and you're like right. cross your fingers exactly. and hope to God you exactly. put them in harm's way and they're going to be resilient. But it's actually a very it's a way to actually build connection. It is quality time. You're learning how they think you're able to transmit. I think ultimately what I feel is that parents want to be connected to their kids. Yeah. And they want to love their kids and they want their kids to feel loved and safe and secure. And I love that what you just described. I, you could apply it to everything. Homework. You can. You can. The exactly. chores in the house. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. believe. Yep. 
And may I add, for those who may be interested in that four-step method, which I quickly articulated, uh, it's become a really, uh, it's, you know, when I think about the takeaways from How to Raise an Adult, my book, this is um, probably the most concrete and universally applicable because all of us have the obligation to teach our kids all the skills they're supposed to have by the time they're 18 or 20 or 29 or whenever you think adulthood starts these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's wonderful and very concrete, and it's this is how you spend your time with yeah. your kid and for your kid and teaching. Yeah. Julie, you just said something amazing, which was teaching kids skills is an opportunity for connection, and you're absolutely right. These days, we tend to think, I'm connected to my kid by handling every little thing for them and by being on top of every assignment and being on the sidelines of every game. I'm connecting. you know. And we, Who wants to lose that connection when, in fact... It's just as great a connection, but with even better outcomes if we use the time to teach our kids the skills they're going to need to know to thrive out in the world one day. So we don't have to experience a loss by shifting from overhelping to teaching skills. The connection is actually stronger when we're teaching skills. Yeah. And, and um, I also, yes. in the research for my book, and you may have heard this expression, that our job is not to solve our children's problems but to make our children excellent problem solvers. Beautiful. Right? Or, put differently, our job is not to prepare the road for our kid, but to prepare the kid for the road. I love that. I love that. I think that's, that's, that really is so powerful. So, Julie, also in your book, so one is we want to teach them, not do for them, and we've talked quite a lot about that. But in your book, you also talk about just loving your kid and not always even teaching. And in my book, and this came out of my coaching with parents where they felt so all their time with their kid, they're teaching them something. They're always in teaching mode, which can also put a lot of pressure on kids, like every minute is teaching. You talked in your book about just being. So can we talk a little bit about, I guess the way I articulate it is that in, in taking care of our kids, the t- we have to spend time providing for our kids, making money, arranging the logistics of their lives to a point, relating to our kids, getting to know them for the unique individuals that they are, and teaching our kids life skills and values so that they can succeed in the world. I think relate and teach often get conflated by parents, all of us. It's like you feel like every moment has to be a teaching moment. Um, and that can end up being a burden for the parent and also, I think, hard on kids, right, because they're always in learning mode and they're always under pressure. So the way I distinguish the two, and then I'd love to hear from your perspective, your thoughts on it, because um, I think when we're teaching our kids, we're bringing them somewhat into the adult world and they are the student of us. Right. right. I'm going to show you how to do this, yep. how to think about this, et cetera, et cetera, and empower yep. you to learn how to do that for yourself. Yep. When we are relating to our kids, we are entering their world. Yeah. Yeah. And we are the student of them. Yeah. And it's a very I, different to be on the receiving is. end of each it of is. those. It is. It is. I think it's a beautiful distinction. And, um, in relating, we think we're relating by saying, how much homework do you have? When are you going to do it? Are you going to you know, practice your oboe? Have you practiced your oboe? Are you starting your college essays? You know, we think we're relating. 
But all we're doing is nagging them about the things that we've decided matter most. And I think one of the crises in adolescence today is that kids don't feel that they matter to us as a person. They feel they matter to us when they're doing well, when Mm -hmm. they have an achievement we can brag about. They know they matter when we have failed, they have failed to meet our expectations, but they don't feel they intrinsically matter. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we're failing to relate to them and to be the student of them, as you so beautifully put it. And boy, Julie, all of us hunger, all of us, to have someone in our life who is interested in us as we are, you know? Yeah. In somebody just exactly. taking an interest in us and being interested in, 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 in whatever we might have to say. We're all hungry for those kinds of connections. Yeah, we really, really are. I think it's the essence of the human experience is yeah. we just want to be seen yeah. and, interest, and and valued for who we are, not what we do, but someone's. And it's sort of the opposite of it's play first, connect first, then teach. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, I, I you know, parents who walk through the door and what's, what was your homework and did you practice your piano and why didn't you set the table and... And after all the chores and all the work and all the that and the learning, then we'll have connecting time. Kids are not interested at that point. They're like, can you give me some space? Right. So to flip it, it's like each reconnection point. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. Can I say something about chores while we're just, you've mentioned them a few times. Yeah. Um, I discovered um, the Harvard Grant study, which is this longitudinal study of humans kicks off thousands of findings. It's still ongoing. Um, And one of the findings was that uh, people who were professionally successful in life, when they look back on, you know, someone is now nearing the end of their life, but turns out they were professionally successful. What those people had in common was they did chores as a child, or they had a part-time job in high school. And and so I joke with parents in my talks, it's not Kumon, it's vacuum. You know, you think it's all yeah. about math enrichment and, you know, prepping for the SAT, but will act what will actually um, ensure that your child is successful out in the workplace is give them chores, make them work. It teaches a work ethic, teaches them to pitch in, roll up their sleeves, do the mundane stuff, you know, know that they should not just wait around for other people to handle everything, but they need to contribute their effort to the betterment of the whole. And these days with time being so precious and short, seemingly short, right? We don't have time. Our kids are so busy. We think we're doing right by our kids by sending them to all this enrichment. What we're doing is undermining the chance to build a work ethic. So no matter how wealthy, no matter how busy, no matter how much better you can stack the dishwasher because you've been doing it for 40 years, your kid must do the work for themselves. They have to do dishes. They have to do laundry. They have to do the garbage and the recycling. They have to take care of pets. They have to sweep. They have to vacuum. They have to to learn these things because that's what teaches a work ethic that will make them soar in the workplace, which is what we want could not agree with you more. And hearing the science and the studies of that long-term value is very helpful. I love how uh, insightful, how practical, how full heart, soul, and um, helpful you are to humans everywhere. So thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, Julie. Appreciate it. Yeah. Seriously, right. this has really been a fun conversation. 
If people want to find out more about your work, your books, your merch, where yes. do they go? Uh, thanks for the opportunity. So I'm online as everyone is. I'm on. Uh, the best thing to do is go to my website, julielifcotthames.com without the hyphen. julielifcotthames.com. That's where you can sign up for my newsletter. That's where you can get all my social media handles. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, that's where you can watch my TED Talk on the harm of overparenting. You can order my books, blah, blah, blah. So the website is probably the best place. And yes, there's merch there too. Check it out. I've got a bumper sticker uh, that says hashtag raising adults. It's, one of, it's sort of a college bumper sticker type font. But the point is where I'm raising an adult and that's more important than what college my kid gets into. I love it. I love it. Great. All right. <laughs> Thanks. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames as much as I did. Again, you can find out more about Julie on her website, julielithcotthames.com, no hyphen. You can sign up for her newsletter, follow her on social, buy that amazing bumper sticker she mentioned. It's all there. And before we end for today, I want to give all my listeners a heads up about the show. We're going to have one more bonus episode like this one coming up. It'll be a conversation with another very special guest, but no spoilers yet. Stay tuned. After that, the Time to Parent podcast will be taking a break for the season. But you can stay in touch with me during our hiatus by going to my website, juliemorgenstern.com. And if you love the concepts of Time to Parent and want to share it with the people in your community, in your school, or in your company. I love to come and speak to large groups of parents to share these revolutionary ways to make time to balance raising a human with being a human. So come to my website, juliemorgenstern.com, come to the Contact Me page, and let's talk about me coming to speak to your group. On that note, thanks for joining me as we together make time to parent. I'm Julie Morgenstern. See you again next week.